Good morning, ladies. Now it's on. Okay. Don't want to blast everybody's ears. Welcome. And I uh, just want to uh, pray for Elise. She'll be teaching this morning. I don't think there are any other announcements that we need to know about, but there's free food. So there you go. It's, you probably saw it as you came in. It was on the table in the lobby. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for Elise. We thank you for her gifts, for her heart. And we thank you for the study that she has put in uh, to help us understand your word better. And Lord, we thank you that you are working on behalf of your people all the time and in every situation, even when we don't see it. And uh, we thank you for that faithfulness that you have toward us. Help us to be faithful to you, Lord. And thank you for taking us back when we forget to seek your face as David did, but then you respond when we come back and we seek your face again for advice for our life and for direction. Please be with Elise as she speaks to us this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, is this good? Can everyone hear me? All right. Well, good morning. So here we are. We have four chapters left of Second Samuel. And these four, last four chapters are not in chronological order, um, but form an epilogue or an appendix. The author pauses the chronological study um, for these four chapters and then resumes chronologically in 1 Kings. There are speculations as to when each of these events may have occurred, but we don't know for sure. Why would the author choose to interrupt the succession narrative? Commenters Commentators believe that these chapters are not out of place, but intentionally placed together in a literary framework for an intended purpose, to conclude First and Second Samuel and show us more about David's character, God's character, and our need for Jesus. We will see how God is a promise keeper, he is our helper, he is our protector, he is our companion, and he is victorious. Second Samuel is divided into two sections. There have been many difficult passages in 2 Samuel for us to read and wrestle with. And here again, we are faced with a difficult passage in the first section, in which we see the effects of sin presenting themselves as extreme cruelty. It would be easy to, not, to just not read and study these passages. However, they are a part of God's word too. Like some others, I found Alistair Begg's sermons very helpful, and he encouraged with this passage from Romans 15.4. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. I know I have found that with some of these difficult passages we have already studied, I can walk into Bible study feeling discouraged and confused by a passage. But upon further study, listening to the teaching, and through discussion in my group time, I find that there is hope and encouragement even in some of the darkest passages. My hope is that you will be able to see that today. So we're going to start in verse 1 with an extended time of famine. We know it lasted for at least three consecutive years, and it lasted long enough to cause David to wonder why it was occurring. David acts faithfully here. Yay! He sought the Lord. He sought the face of the Lord for his answer. He turned first to God, and God answers David. There is blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. 
The judgment on the nation of Israel and the current famine is due to Saul's failure to abide by a covenant made between the Gibeonites and Israel. And to give a little background knowledge, the author chooses to add that the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. In Joshua chapter 9, we read about how the Gibeonites deceived Joshua and the Israelites into making a covenant with them in the name of the Lord to protect themselves and have their lives spared. Even once it was revealed that the Gibeonites had tricked them, the leaders of Israel would not allow them to be attacked. And they said, we have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. It was of utmost importance to the Israelites to keep their covenant with the Gibeonites. This is in stark contrast to Saul choosing to break the covenant. Covenants, promises are meant to be kept. A covenant can be defined as a binding promise made between two parties. In the Old Testament, covenant promises made in the name of the Lord and before God were taken very seriously, and they would face the wrath of God when not kept. In Genesis, we read about the Hebrew cutting of a covenant, or a blood covenant, in which an animal was cut in two and then placed opposite of each other to create a walkway. Those taking the covenant oath would then walk between it, as if to say, may this be done to me if I break my oath. This may seem foreign or even harsh to us as our society seems to break covenants fairly easily. Little white lies and even much larger promises too. We see it in our political world. It is hard to trust politicians that make promises they don't keep. We also see nations breaking covenants made between each other and having wars occur as a result of promises not being kept. I'm sure we can all think of many covenants, big and small, that are easily broken, but it doesn't justify or make it right. Why is it important to keep promises? Are there covenants that we easily break without thinking about the ramifications? What are the consequences when we don't keep our promises? Saul's breaking of a covenant definitely had consequences. He was more concerned about promoting Israel nationalism than keeping a covenant promise and honoring God. He had chosen to break this covenant and killed many of the Gibeonites in their homeland, thus bringing on the wrath of God. The Israelites were facing a covenant curse. I will not elaborate here on generational sin and the effect sin has on future generations, as Sarah Gamage touched on this a few weeks ago and shared some additional resources on the topic. I will share, though, that commentators don't believe this is violating Deuteronomy 24:16. Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. They don't believe it was being violated because here Saul was acting as king and representing the people of Israel instead of as an individual. Atonement was needed. An action was needed to correct the wrongdoing of Saul. And it was David's job to determine how to make it right and end the famine. David tries to determine what the best atonement would be, and this time he turns to the Gibeonites for his answer. We don't know why he, turned, he didn't turn to God this time and why he went to the Gibeonites instead. Um, maybe it was okay that he did it. Maybe it wasn't. Um, but it did make me think about, it was a reminder to me to be persistent in seeking God's wisdom and counsel. How often do we 
first turn to God and then go to a friend, a trusted mentor, or a counselor for further wisdom. Those are all good and helpful avenues for seeking wisdom, but we must also be consistent in turning back to the Lord for his wisdom. The Gibeonites respond with a general statement that they do, do not want any financial payment from Saul and his family, and they don't have any right to kill any man in Israel. Why do they add this bit of information? Are they trying to infer what they would like to have done but can't enact themselves? David, the king, goes back to the Gibeonites and asks again what he should do for them. He is the king, yet he is looking to the Gibeonites for an answer, and again, does not turn to the Lord. This time, the Gibeonites respond very specifically. The man who consumed us and planned to destroy us so that we should have no place in all of the territory of Israel, let seven of his sons be given to us so that we may hand them before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. It is as if they are saying, thank you so much for asking again. Let us tell you exactly what we would like done. They want bloodshed. They want Saul's family's blood shed in his hometown. They want atonement. Saul's attack on the Gibeonites was a bloody massacre. And it was expected in those days that atonement would be made through more bloodshed. You shall not pollute the land in which you live, for blood pollutes the land, and no atonement can be made for the land for the blood that is shed in it, except by the blood of the one who shed it. Numbers 35, 33. David replies to the Gibeonites' request with, I will give them. David does spare Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, because of a promise he made to Jonathan in 1 Samuel 20.15. He kept that promise in 2 Samuel 9 when he showed kindness to Mephibosheth and here again now. David chose to keep his promise. Then he chose seven other sons of Saul. Seven sons. Mary J. Evans writes, seven, a small number, but the symbol of completeness and appropriately indicate the debt that was indeed repaid. Saul broke a promise, so the result is death, seven of his descendants. Saul, the covenant breaker, and David, the covenant keeper. Jesus is our promise keeper and our protector. Just like David committed his protection of Mephibosheth, Jesus is committed to our safety. Got something to drink. David chooses Armoni and Mephibosheth. Just to clarify, a different Mephibosheth from verse 7. <laughs> the two sons of Rizpah, Saul's concubine, and five sons of Mirab, the daughter of Saul. The location is on the mountain in Saul's land, just like the Gibeonites asked. And it happens on the first days of harvest. We know it was a famine, so there probably wasn't an actual harvest. But it was used as a reference point, something to help the timing be remembered. This was an awful scene, and it was marked and will be unforgettable. Next comes the horrific scene. These innocent boys facing punishment for their dad's grandfather's sin. Atonement is ugly. We don't often stop to think about the full extent of atonement. Dale Ralph Davis reminds us, atonement is a drippy, bloody, smelly business. The stench of death hangs heavy wherever the wrath of God has been quenched. David had to ask these mothers to give up their sons to be hung. 
I wonder how this must have felt for David. Was it easy for David to agree to hand over these sons of Saul? For these mothers to hand over their sons knowing their demise? God knew, though. He gave up his son for our atonement. David was committing a right wrong in a sin-ordered world. He is inadequate to deal with sin. David's future son would be the only one able to deal with sin and the wrath of God. Romans 3, 24 to 25 tells us, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. We are coming up on Holy Week. And this all points us to the cross. Jesus's blood was shed for our atonement. It was a bloody mess. Do we allow ourselves to go there and truly realize what Jesus went through for us? We don't face the wrath of God because he took it for us. William G.J. Evans' hymn, Wounded for Me, reminded us, reminds us of this incredible atoning gift Jesus gave us. Wounded for me, wounded for me. There on the cross, he was wounded for me. And gone my transgressions, and now I am free. All because Jesus was wounded for me. I didn't cry last night, so I don't know. <laughs> we pick back up in the chapter with Rizpah, the mother of Armoni, and Mephibosheth protecting the bodies of the deceased. She has covered the bodies with her sackcloth to protect them from the wild animals. She shows true love. She could not stop her sons from being killed, but she can, she can care for and protect their bodies in hopes that they would have a proper burial. We don't know exactly how long she remained there, except that she remained with the bodies until the rain fell, ending the salmon, famine. This, this pulls on our heartstrings. She sat there day after day. I'm sure the bodies started to smell, but even worse, she would be looking at a physical reminder of what happened to her sons. We read this and are sad right alongside with this mom. It is unimaginable and heartbreaking. David was touched too by this, and he had the bones of Saul and Jonathan gathered to be buried alongside the bones of those hung. David showed extreme kindness and respect, and respect here by providing a proper burial for Saul and Jonathan. David was being loyal to his father-in-law and his best friend. Would we be able to show the same love and loyalty to Saul that David did here? Now we're going to move on to the second section of this passage. And there was war again. We will hear that a lot. We have definitely read about many battles already, and yet here are four more. We also see a list that is recorded of David's mighty men that played important roles in the wars against the Philistines. We meet four descendants from the giants in Gath, who all fall at the hands of David. God made a promise to David when he became king in 2 Samuel 3.18. For the Lord has promised David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. David would defeat the Philistines and do what Saul was unable to do. David did not accomplish this alone, though. We are provided this honor roll of men that helped David. Three of these accounts are also detailed in 1 Chronicles 20. 
The theme here is there was war again. However, David is aged and he has grown weary. He is no longer the young, eager boy ready to face Goliath. He is older now, his body aged, and he is battle weary from all the battles he is engaged in. We pick up with verse 15. There was war again between the Philistines and Israel, and David went down together with his servants, and they fought against the Philistines, and David grew weary. And Ishbi Benab, one of the descendants of the giants, whose spear weighed 300 shekels of bronze and who was armed with a new sword, fought to kill David. But Abishai, the son of Zariah, came to his aid and attacked the Philistine and killed him. Then David's men swore to him, you shall no longer go out with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. Ishbi Benab, it's a great name, right? <laughs> um, one of the descendants of the giants wants to kill David. He is attacking him with a spear that weighs seven and a half pounds. For comparison, the spear David used against Goliath was 15 pounds. But he has a new sword and he is ready to go after David. Maybe even more so because he knows David is tired and weary. However, he is not victorious as Abishai steps in and saves David. Abishai, the son of Zariah, that David had called more severe in his actions than David's gentleness in 2 Samuel 3, was able to redeem himself here in a sense and be known for his victory over the Philistine. This battle did reveal the weariness of David and caused his men to determine he was no longer fit for battle. Alistair Begg said it was like David's men were taking away his car keys. <laughs> you may still be king, but you are not going to head out onto the battlefield anymore and risk distinguishing the lamp of Israel. In 1 Samuel 3.3, when the Lord calls Samuel in the night, the lamp of God is referenced. It is burning there as a symbol of God's faithfulness and his intent to fulfill his promises and raise up future servants, including David. If David were snuffed out now, it would impact all of Israel. He was the light, the glue that held Israel together and kept it moving forward. Next, we see that there was war again with the Philistines, and Sibachai the Hushatite defeats the giant descendant Saph this time. Then there was war again with the Philistines, and Elhanan, the son of Jariorijim, the Bethlehemite, struck down Goliath the Gittite. I will add that there is a little, some controversy about that last war and the Elhanan with the Beth, with Goliath. But I'm not going to go there. If you're interested in reading more about it, there's lots of commentary, but there's not a solid conclusion as to if that's accurate. If it, there's, The controversy is that some people feel it might be contradicting the first battle of Goliath. So I'll just let that for you. And if you want to explore it further, you can. So... Our final scene today is when there was war again at Gath with a man of great stature who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, 24 in number, and he was also descended from the giant. This man who was defeated was not mentioned by name, but instead described by his physical characteristics. However, it isn't these physical abnormalities that we should be concerned about, but his attitude. He taunted the Israelites or derided them. Just like Goliath, he put himself out there in an effort to say, come get me. I can defeat you. I can defeat your God. 
He was insulting Israel, and in doing so, he was insulting God. Just like David defeated Goliath, Jonathan, the son of Shimei, David's brother, defeats this taunter. The opposition is silenced. Jonathan, David's nephew, is victorious. This passage provides us a recording of these battles and these men's courageous defeats of these giants, but it also gives us a comparison of David's reign as king to Jesus's reign and ultimate victory. Alistair Begg says, just as God granted victory to David's men in battle, Christ's followers can be assured of victory over the giants of Satan, sin, and death. We're going to take a quick look at Begg's comparison of King David and King Jesus. First, David had a team. We see here his team is made up of Abishai, Sibachai, Elhanan, and Jonathan. Jesus had a team too, his disciples. He describes his disciples in Luke twenty-two twenty-eight. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials. They were his mighty men for his time on earth. They stuck by Jesus and were on his side. Are we on Jesus' side? Would our names appear on an honor roll of those fighting the battle with him, for him? Second, if David's lamp is snuffed out, the community collapses. If Jesus was snuffed out, the community collapses. 1 Corinthians 15, 17 says, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. The Gospels detail the life of our King Jesus. If he didn't exist and didn't die for our sins, we wouldn't be freed for our sins. We wouldn't be freed from our sins. We wouldn't have a purpose. Third, David was sidelined from battle. The good news is Jesus is never sidelined. Four, David needed help. He needed his servant Abishai to step in and save him. Jesus does not need help. He is enough. Fifth, David's lamp was in danger of being snuffed out. Jesus's cannot. His light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. 1 John 1, 5. Jesus is the fulfillment of David's kingdom. Jesus will reign forever. 7. The defeat of the giants foreshadows Jesus' ultimate defeat of our enemies. And last, Jesus steps in and deals with our giant enemies, Satan, sin, and death. What giants exist in our life? that we need Jesus' help to defeat. A habitual sin? Lies that Satan whispers to us? What battles are we facing in which we need Jesus' help? A struggling relationship? Raising teenagers? Raising preschoolers? Handling aging parents? Being patient for God to answer a prayer? A difficult diagnosis? A long-term sickness or an ailment? Are we seeking the Lord and putting our faith and trust in him to be our victorious king? In closing, I want to share the words to a song. As I was working on my talk last week, I happened to tune into the music I had playing in the background, and I heard, I will face my giants with confidence. I couldn't believe the timing. Yes, the words from Sanctus Israel's song, Confidence, are so true. I'm not a warrior. I'm too afraid to lose. I feel unqualified for what you're calling me to. But Lord, with your strength, I've got no excuse because broken people are exactly who you use. So give me faith like Daniel in the lion's den. Give me hope like Moses in the wilderness. Give me a heart like David. Lord, be my defense. 
so I can face my giants with confidence. You took a shepherd boy and made him a king, so I'm going to trust you and give you everything. I'll be a conqueror because you fight for me. I'll be a champion claiming your victory. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. Thank you for revealing your truths to us, even through these difficult passages, that we may be encouraged and have hope through you. You paid for our sins through your death and your blood shed on the cross. Thank you for being our promise keeper. By your death on the cross and our faith in you, we are promised forgiveness of our sins and a life eternal with you. Help us to put our trust in you, knowing that you will be with us always. You will help us in our battles. You will protect us. You will be our companion, and you will be victorious over the giants in our lives. It is in your son's name we pray. Amen.